Good morning. Welcome to Bible class here, as you're aware, but those listening at St. Paul's in De Pere, Pastor Kevin Thompson, I'm glad and honored to be able to guide you in Bible study today as we'll continue to do what we usually do here, look at the lectionary readings assigned for next Sunday. For those who are here, just real briefly, there's the Bible carton back. Again, I believe based on all the reading and listening I've done, it's totally safe to use those. We don't use those Bibles except for a week later. There's also a handout sheet nearby the Bible cart with the readings printed out as well. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you again this morning seeking your blessing, that you would bless us again with your Holy Spirit as we gather together as your people, as brothers and sisters in Christ gathered around your holy, precious word. Lord, you tell us that always... You will give us your Holy Spirit, that you are with us, and that you will guide us. May you especially do that now as we get into your word. May you bless us as we have questions and uh, maybe even struggles or just joys, Lord, with your word. That ultimately, all we do this morning in word and in thought, may it bring us closer to you, strengthened in our faith towards you, and also enabled to share that faith with others. So, Lord, we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we're going to look at the lectionary readings for next Sunday and just make sure I get my thoughts straight. So it's a little bit different because it'll be November, still next Sunday, but next weekend we begin the first Sunday in Advent. For those of you at St. Paul's here in De Pere, that also means that we will have our traditional hanging of the green in worship. So that's also a blessing to, to still be able to have that celebration despite all the changes and the like going on. So... We come off of Thanksgiving and right away, still November, but we're beginning Advent. Our first reading next week will be Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1 through 9. As always, let's just go ahead and hear God's word. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Here ends our Old Testament reading for next weekend. I did my best to be respectful, but also try to give a little bit of tone into this, as I believe the grammar and and the words reflect because this, this word through Isaiah the prophet, God's word to us, is really the best, I think the best way to look at it from all the reading and study I've done is, is a plea. 
He's pleading for God. So just even for a second, you look at those first words, that very first, just the half verse we have. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Right? So we look at this and we hear the, the plea that, that Isaiah is just desperately making to God. That ultimately, skip ahead to the end of our Bible study today, we ultimately can make as well. That we too, that these words become our words in a way that we plead to God, we cry out to Him. But this plea is for Isaiah is, re, is pleading to God on behalf of the people, saying, God, break in on this situation. And what's the situation but the simplest, quickest way to say it? A situation full of sin. Right? We'll get into it more in the, the verses to come. But the situation is the people stuck in their sin in their uh, terrible ways. And, they, and Isaiah is pleading on behalf of the people, God, break in. Break into the situation of all our sin and our futile and terrible ways, our unfaithful ways, God. Break in so that we can have your reign, your, your love come back down upon us. Now, before we get into it as well, this brings up this concept of theophany. Theophany being when God reveals himself to his people. Well, really, to anybody, but especially to his people. Theophany. Right? It's this, this term in which uh, God just is he's breaking through the apparently solid dome of the heavens. Breaking through the heavens and coming down to earth. Now, as I say, that, I want to be careful. It's not like God isn't here on earth. He always is, right? He's omnipresent. We believe that. But oftentimes, as we experience even in our own lives, he allows things to happen on this earth, and it may seem as if he's not here, right? It may seem as if he's not doing things. He's always working, but this is a plea for God. Break through the heavens, come down, make it known, show us. And the theophany, that revealing of God, revealing of himself, is also often very visible. As you look in verse 2, as fire kindles brushwood, brushwood the fire causes water to boil. This breaking through of God is very visible, very physical with fire. As we even see in this passage, shaking the most solid foundations like the mountains. And nothing else can break, uh, nothing else can break the power of the people's sin and win this situation except the direct involvement of God. And that's a key to this whole passage. Nothing but the direct involvement of God can break the people's sin. Now, as you look through Scripture, even uh, in, the Old, in the Old Testament, the prophets, right, he breaks through in different ways. He uses different means. You've got in the Old Testament, especially with, in the book of Isaiah, the fact that there's exile. He allows for judgment to come upon the people. But that can and is still the way that God breaks through to his people. But the only way that they can be broken through to in their sin is from God's direct involvement. So let's look at that a little more closely. Verse 2, as I said, what's his direct involvement? He's pleading to him. He's saying that the mountains might quake at your presence. End of verse 1. Then verse 2, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil. Now when you hear that, when you hear fire and God's presence being revealed, directly intervening, do any other scriptural accounts come to your minds? Any other times in which God came and directly showed himself, revealed himself to people through fire? Moses, nice! Right? Comes to Moses, got the fire of the burning bush. That'll get your attention, right? You actually, and then even back up before that, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. They're banished out of the garden, and you've got the, the cherub and the seraphim guarding the, the entrance to the garden as they've been banished from it. Again, there's fire as well there, this flaming sword. Go New Testament, 
We just talked about... Oh, that was living way, sorry. New Testament in Acts chapter 2, in Pentecost. Right? This great miraculous event in which suddenly all these people are gathered from all over the nations. They're all over the place and they come to this one place together for the Feast of Pentecost. And suddenly, like fire appeared over the disciples, speaking in tongues, speaking in languages that they had never learned before. That fire again, talking about the presence of God so clearly, so directly intervening. And then if you go to Revelation, Revelation might see a whole lot of other things too, right? But Revelation, certainly a fire again, as it talks about and describes the very direct involvement, very direct intervening of God for His people. And that's the other thing I want to be careful about with my words as we think about this scripture passage. He's intervening in such a great, wonderful, miraculous way for his people. Right? He's not just bringing down fire and all these other things because he's God and he just wants to be scary. It's because he's doing it for his people. Right? And it's also so that his people always correctly know him. Because as was experienced, these people here in their sin, they weren't knowing God in the proper way. They were turning from Him. They were going the other ways. They didn't quite properly understand Him. They didn't seek Him for anything and everything. And so with Him intervening in this very uh, direct and wonderful, miraculous way, Isaiah is pleading to correct them. Bring some fear of God into the people. Show them the peril that is ahead of them should they continue in their evil, sinful ways. But ultimately so they can turn. Turn back to Him. Turn back t- towards Him and truly know Him for who He is. And we know that every time we repent and turn towards God, what do we receive? But grace. Right? So, we look at this. Go down to verse 3 now. When you did awesome things that we did not look for. Have I ever talked about my, my personal th- experience with the word awesome in this class? If no one says yes, at least you don't remember. So I can say, they, oh, Two people remember. <laughs> so last time I was here, great. Great, last time I was here, last time I was on the air, wonderful. Okay, my point is you've heard my thing on awesome, but in verse 3, we'll skip over that story. Thank you, Kim. We'll skip over, at least in verse 3, when you see the word awesome, the other word there, it can be used in the translation of it, is you did wonderful things. right? And this word wonder, what's really interesting, this is... This is really deep on the Hebrew. But when you look at the Hebrew words for wonder and fear, they are etymologically connected. Think about that for a second. The word wonder and fear are etymologically connected in the Hebrew language. Which is interesting, right? God does such a great, wonderful thing. So connected to the fact that it brings fear. We can have a whole excursus, right, on the fear of God, right? To have fear of God is, in some part, to be completely afraid of Him, because He can and He has, and we'll actually see towards the end of this reading, bring down full wrath and peril. At the same time, it's much more than that, to have that fear, to have that awe, awesome, right? That awe of Him, that, yes, He has that, but also complete great respect towards Him, look at what He'll do. So that's really interesting that we hear Isaiah is pleading on behalf of the people when he did awesome things. So he's looking back into the past and what God has done. But we have this word awesome, these great wonderful things, so much also connected to fear. Another thing I want us to think about with that word, those two words being connected, is why do you think when God does such wonderful things, there's such direct theophanic things intervening for his people with great fire or other miraculous appearances or the like. 
Why do you think such great wonders bring fear? Think about that. Why, when we see great wonders done by God, why would they bring fear? Arguably one reason that I think, I agree with, I read in the commentary, but is that if you see something like that, right? Picture your Moses, right? Kenny, you brought up Moses. That was a great example. You got Moses. You picture your Moses and this burning bush shall suddenly appears from you. It suddenly tells you, I am not in control. Right? Why in part could it be scary and bring fear in that regard? Because it tells us we're not in control. If God can shake the mountains and the heavens and the earth quake, we're not in control, but He is. I won't ask you to raise your hands because we probably don't want to admit this, but how many of you always want to be in control? Mine's up. Okay? I admit, I like control, right? And I think, admittedly, most of us like control. And even if we don't feel like we have to control everything, we like our certain levels or extents of control, right? And that's part of the challenge. That's part of our challenge in all of life. I know we're not supposed to talk about it. Well, we can. I'm kind of tired of talking about all the pandemic stuff. But, right, what is, isn't that one of the biggest challenges we face? We aren't in control. Why has it become so scary for people? Because we're not in control. The difference between pandemic fear and great and awesome in Isaiah fear is he's not just bringing some pandemic and Isaiah Isaiah is pleading to God saying God yes we have fear in these great wonders but we are saying God bring them down to show us you're with us and you will take care of us the other thing is is quite frankly just when God does these wonders it's unexpected right generally when God intervenes and he reveals himself in these very physical, visible ways to people, it's not expected. Again, Moses, not expecting it right there. That comes on a burning bush, right? Pentecost. It's not like everyone said, hey, you can't wait till little flames of fire appear. And then we see the disciples speaking a language they didn't know. You just didn't know it was coming. But interesting difference is, in Isaiah, he's actually asking for it to happen. Right? Typically, when God reveals himself in these theophanic ways... It's unexpected. But here, Isaiah is literally saying, God, do this. He's pleading, for, he's pleading for God to reveal himself in such a wonderful, awesome, fearful way. So, let's go on. We look at this, verse 4. And we start to get, quite frankly, as much as this passage may be a little bit scary in some, or if you think about the great magnitude of this revelation of God, it's also incredibly beautiful, comforting passage, in my opinion at least. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. There's no other God like you. Nothing, no person, no thing has a right to be called God except God. And if you look at it, from of old, no one has heard, no one's perceived by the ear. So not just have you heard it, but you, excuse me, you've truly perceived it, you've taken it in, and no eye has seen. I know that's not all five senses, right? But that's a pretty complete picture. No ears, no eyes have seen or perceived anyone like you, God. You're the only God there is. And then the last part. This, to me, is the most beautiful part. I'm still debating, as typically you know when we're in here, we sometimes preach the next week, so I'm debating on where things are going next week in the sermon. But this is the next part I think is so beautiful. Who acts for those who wait for Him. For those who wait for Him. And what does it mean to wait? 
If I say just the word wait, I don't know, first thing in my mind, thinking completely not about the Bible, is like at dinner, right? You're waiting for dinner to be ready. You go out to dinner, you wait for your table to be ready. You get waited on or served, which is a whole different kind of wait, right? But you're waiting maybe for Thanksgiving to come, or my kids are already counting down to Christmas. (laughs) Trying to teach them Thanksgiving comes first, right? But you have that concept of wait. What does that mean? It's all very different than what, when you look at this, the Hebrew um, definitions and the, the context and with this passage, the way Isaiah packs it all together, here's what a, co- a commentary said. And I just want to read this word for words, not my words. To wait is to manifest trust, trust that is willing to commit itself to God over the long haul, to continue to believe and expect when all others have given up. It is to believe that it is better for something to happen in God's time than for it to happen on my initiative in my time. I'm sure you've heard before, to wait is to trust, but to me, that to trust God over the long haul. And that's the hard part especially, right? It's a long haul most of the times, especially if we're praying to God for something, we're saying, God, please. A lot of times it makes us wait. You've heard the expression, right? What's his answer to prayer? Yes, no, wait. Right? It's a long haul. I also like that second part. And to expect when all others have given up. And look, that's what Isaiah is doing. Everyone else has given up, so to speak, right? Now, sure, that's not to say there are no, nobody in that time who had faith. But what I'm saying is, like, Isaiah, on behalf of the people, when other nations, other people around, had given up on God altogether, Isaiah and people with him, on behalf of them, he's saying, we're still counting on you. Again, I don't like talking about pandemic, but I'll do it again what we live in every single day, right? And the same for us. Even when others around us, in the news, the social media, our social circles had given up and said, just, it's taken over me, frustrated, I'm done. We keep waiting on God. And we keep saying, God, we trust in you. But, back to Isaiah. So, and we look at this too in the context, um, Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah arguably is about waiting. It's about waiting for a God who's going to reveal himself to his people, which we've talked about. It's about waiting for the restoration of the people from before they were even exiled. Right? So there's not just waiting for him to reveal himself, but waiting for that restoration. Then waiting for a servant to deal a death blow to sin. And that servant, I typed it out with a capital S because really in Isaiah, you can see the servant songs, which is a reference to Christ. So waiting for the servant to deal a death blow to sin. And waiting for a Messiah to establish his kingdom forever. But as, no matter how long they wait, as long as they know, the people of God know one thing. That unlike all the gods of the world, the supposed gods there are, God will act on behalf of those who wait for him. God will act for those who wait for him. Now look at verse 5. Waiting for God. Typically, again, if you think of waiting, what do you think of? What's it look like? Think about in mind, what does it look like for you to wait? You can shout it out if you want, but I know it's hard with the mask and distance and all that. To me, if I think of waiting, I think of like that cartoon, just kind of sitting there, right? You twiddle your thumbs as you got your hand crossed. You're just waiting. You're not doing much. You just wait. There's nothing I can do. I gotta just wait. Maybe you even said those words. I can't do anything. I just need to wait. Isaiah, though, waiting is actually not passive. It's active. Look at verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. So, to wait is to remember with joy and to remember God's ways. 
What does that mean? To remember his ways, to remember with, to, to do righteousness with joy? To do righteousness? That's really arguably to just live the daily Christian life. Right? To live a daily life that shows that we know God's ways of integrity, honesty, faithfulness, simplicity, mercy, generosity, and self-denial. To live your daily life knowing his ways. And just simply do what we know and wait for God in his time. Now, some of you, if you really wanted to, if this was more of the debate class, right? You'd say, well, pastor, that's kind of the same as doing nothing, right? I mean, okay, we could debate that. But to wait for God isn't to just sit around. It's to go out and keep living our life, knowing who he is, knowing that God is with us, knowing that God will sustain us, knowing that we need to share God with other people. So it's not really a passive thing. It's go out and live. And those things you pray for, the things you plead for, the things that you need, God will continue to provide for. Now let's get to the negative part again. <laughs> Verse 5 goes on. Uh, Behold, you were angry. So it's interesting. Uh, Isaiah's plead talks to, is talking about God, right? When you did awesome things in verse 3, no one's heard of you. Verse then 5, you meet him with joy, who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. And then it switches, verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? That's interesting. He even says this word, shall we be saved? Question. Verse 6, we've all become like one who's unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Verse 7, striking. No one calls upon your name, rouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us. You've made us to melt in the hands of our iniquities. Not a good picture. Right? You just read this. If this is all you read... This is not a great picture. This does not exactly uplift us. But it's also the reality, right? The people in their ways, in their unfaithful ways, in this time, in this context, the only one that could remedy their situation was God. Because they sinned. And not just say they sinned, but as it says, they've been there sin a long time. They're like one who's unclean. Now that word unclean, if, I'm sure those of you who are here, especially I know you've heard it before, we've talked about other Bible studies. Scripture has a great um, distinction that often goes through on clean and unclean. And the unclean being that sinful, unfaithful ways. So like one who's unclean, there's even right, we know in the Old Testament laws to staying away from the unclean. Righteous deeds, even the righteous things that they did are like a polluted garment. So even the good things that they do are stained and, and not even good in their own. Fade like a leaf, right? Just fall, just ended, all those leaves falling down. Think about that. God used a very physical um, description, a leaf falling down from a tree. You're like me, you raked them up or you had someone rake them up and get rid of them. Maybe even crunched them, mowed over them with the lawnmower, they're gone. That's the imagery he uses to describe the people. We all fade like a leaf. Iniquities take us away like a leaf. We melt in the hand of our iniquities. Again, a bleak situation. But the point, Isaiah, as he makes this, he gets so negative, if you will, about all this, because he's saying, God, I'm pleading to you, break in from the heavens, come down, show us, be here, intervene for us, because look at us, God. We're in a terrible spot. There's nothing that we can do to get out of this situation. On our own, we can't do it. Even the good things we do, they're terrible. No one calls upon you on our own. We don't come to you. 
But he's, he's admitting. Thank God we need you. And look at, look at our terrible situation. Also, as you look at all these, you see that it's not like these are situations that are just done to the people. This is the sin of the people. Their own sin that they've committed. Their own unfaithfulness. It's be, this is different than saying, you know, God, we experience death all around us. We experience enemies coming down upon us and wanting to kill us or, or destroy us. That's a different kind of law, if you will. A couple weeks ago, as I did, I preached in the, in, the, in, the, in the services, right? That whole death and the theme of death is law itself. Because it exists and it's terrible. But that is different from what we have here in this passage. This is more so talking about the sin of the people, their ways, their iniquities. That's what they need God intervening for them. So we go to verse 8 through the end. I know we're spending longer on this one, but one, I think this is just packed. I just want to get into this, and I really appreciate this passage. We'll get to the others shortly. Verse 8 through 12, though. or Well, 8 through 12 then calls upon God to remember two things. That one, he's the only one who brought um, Israel into existence, and that now... They're in misery and shame. But we only read through verse 9. You look at it, and we see, it says, Lord, you're our father. We're the clay. You're our potter. We're all the work of your hand. That's an interesting plea that he makes. He said, God, remember, you're ours. We're your people. You're our father. And here, again, we use that word, I think, almost so many times in our circles, right? The heavenly father, we almost gloss over it. Remember, it's a very relational term. As a father is literally by creation intended to care for his creature and his children out of love, so God does. So it's calling upon that relationship. God, you're our father. And not just that, you're the clay, we're the potter. How many of you heard that verse plenty of times before, right? Many, many more hands could be up if we wanted to, right? We've heard this one. He's the one who made us. And if you think of that, now, have any of you ever done clay pottery work, like made it by hand? By chance? Okay. Bane, you can correct me if I don't know what I'm talking about, by the way. Because I've never done it, but I've learned, I've like watched things or mostly just watched TV and it happens on TV shows. <laughs> so correct me, by the way. But you have them sitting at their little wheel, at least this is how I imagine it, and they're spending their time, right? Having the wheel spin and the, the clay is forming, they're using their hands to spend that time and that energy and there's some meticulous nature at times to really form it a certain way. Again, if we want to stretch the metaphor, there's love and concern put into it. And that's what he's evoking here. He says, God, you're the one who made us. You put all that time, that care, that love, that concern into forming us. So don't just let us go by our sinful ways, our iniquities that are carrying us away. God, have that love and that care for us. Come down. Intervene for us. Did I do well enough, Bane? Good enough? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot any more than that. Okay, so... Um, he pleads for God. And the one last thing I have to bring out with this. This is interesting. I've glossed over this before myself. Verse 9. He says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. He doesn't ask for God to take away judgment altogether. He just asks for a lesser judgment. Not, don't take it out to the full extent, right? Be not so terribly angry. And I know you may think, all right, you're picking, you're picking hairs here and splitting stuff. But actually, all the commentators agree on this. That really, when you get into the, the language here, it's talking about, it's not saying, God, take away your judgment entirely. He's just saying, lessen it. 
We can't even handle the full extent of your judgment. Lessen it. And that's interesting. Really think about it. God, we deserve judgment. But we deserve. In our sinful ways, our unfulfilled ways. And yet, God, please, just relent a little bit. And as this judgment comes down, he's pleading for it. Um, Isaiah, being a prophet of God, arguably, he recognizes that judgment is not just an end to itself, but really it's intended, again, to have that redemptive purpose. As I said very much in the beginning of our, of our time here today, that this judgment, this coming down, intervening, revealing himself to the people, is ultimately to bring the people back to God. It's the same thing in our lives, too, we think about, again, should we experience terrible things in this world? It's not because God just wants to strike down and do all this terrible stuff. It's because, again, He allows things to happen. And He's still working and intervening in our lives every single day. And even though the terrible things are going to happen, He still can and will use those things to pull us back to Him. Now, one thing I will say on that is I want to be careful. As I kind of start to draw that connection, there's very different... There, I think there's a strong difference between Isaiah 64 and just bad things that happen in our lives. Right? Here, clearly, he's saying, you know, there's the sin in this nation in Isaiah's time. He's saying, come down. Well, in our lives, there's definitely sin. Obviously, that occurs. But I don't, again, as always, I said before, we don't want to make a connection. Well, there's something terrible happened in my life, so this is God judging me for my sin. We, we can't make those connections. Scripture doesn't tell us we can do those. Right? It was the consequence for sin, but we know his death. But we also know that Christ has taken that. Again, we live in this tr tricky time where we know that God allows things to happen terrible things, but we also know that one day they'll take those all away. Which is a great lead into Pastor Thomas's sermon today as we celebrate Easter in November when Christ takes it all away. Alright, any questions? Lance, yeah. Yeah, I would agree that verse 8 and 9 really getting that fact that appealing to that relationship to have mercy on us, right? I, I absolutely agree with that because and again, we see that in other places in Scripture that Lord, have mercy on us. Don't we say that in worship every week, right? Which is, I think, Lance, in part where you're going as well. We say, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have sinned. Good point, Lance. Thank you. All right, let's go on to the epistle. Next weekend, the epistle is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. I'll read that for us. So 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, Verse 3 through 9. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you will wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here ends our scripture reading for next week. So, 1 Corinthians, I think, at least for those I know of you who are here, again, a fairly familiar book you've heard before, that in the Corinthian church there was a whole host of problems. And just a reminder that especially of note in the Corinthian church at this time as he wrote to the churches uh, was division. Right? And so when he says here, um, well, we didn't read it, but in verse 2, to the church of God that's in Corinth, just a note that it's not like just one little church. It's just the collection of house churches that would have been. It's all the churches, the church, the people, the believers in Corinth. 
So essentially to the believers who are in Corinth, and the problem is, is there is a great amount of division in there. And not to skip ahead, but as some of you may know as well, but as we'll get to, the division especially centered around spiritual gifts. But before we get to that, I want you to note something. Uh, verse 4, Paul says, right, Paul's writing this letter and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, this is a note of thanks that he begins with his, his letter. Now, typically, it was custom in that time, as you wrote letters, to begin in that fashion, to give thanks. But I also want to be careful that in all the reading I've done and studying this, this is not just an empty word of thanks. Like, thank you, but you're terrible. Right? This is not just an empty word of thanks that's just saying, just, he just got to get those words out. It's actually truly thanks. And that, I think, is key as well to understanding this passage, but really getting into the rest of the letter. He does give thanks for the people, for the believers. There's great division, there's terrible issues, but he still gives thanks. He still praises the Lord and is thankful to God for these people, for their faith, for what they're doing, what they can even do more as they overcome and get through the division and unity. It's not just hollow words. Now I'm sure, I talk about this often in confirmation with our, our youth, right? No one can force us to say any words, and sometimes in our lives we, we say words, we don't really mean them. Right? Especially the word, sorry. Sorry. And we move on like that. That's not one of these things, again. This is not just saying, oh, thank you. It's actually truly heartfelt thanks. And again, if you think about Paul, think about him as their, uh, their faithful apostle who's come to them before with the word. Think of him even too, even as faithful pastor, intercessor for them. He has this care and this concern for them. So he gives thanks for them. So, verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, which is a blessing. Uh, It's not just a wish, but actually giving these things to the people. Grace being the highest gift of God that can ever be given, really. The free forgiveness and favor. And peace, again, as we've spoken about, so we'll go briefly. It's not just lack of war, but being reconciled to God. And, again, how much more did this church, the Corinthian church, need that than anything else? The reconciliation. Because, ultimately, when there's divisions amongst people... That also creates divisions amongst God as well. Because if I'm in strife with Dave and I hold a bunch of grudges against him and I'm really nasty to him, that's also putting distance between me and God because that's not how God would have me act. We're not in strife, right? Okay, good. Just picking on you. Okay. So we go on. Um, verse 5. That in, I give thanks to you by the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. In verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech... And in all knowledge. So here, we get right at it by saying that they're enriched in speech and knowledge. It's also already hinting at the issues he's going to talk about later on uh, in chapters 11, 12, and 13. Right? The issues especially of these spiritual gifts and the issues of tongues and its interpretation. Prophecy and then interpreting or weighing that prophecy. Teaching and even in putting together other things for worship. So those things, which he'll talk about more specifically later, he's already alluding to, saying God has enriched you. He's also reminding him, hey, this stuff that you have that you're fighting over, I'm from God. God's the one who blessed you in speech and knowledge. So, um, again, even though these blessings become a source of division, they're also a source of blessing as well. Now, if you look at this in verse 7, it says, that so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. It's interesting that when Paul uses this um, word here in the Greek, it's charismata, which is related to word charis for grace. 
And that helps us remember that all gifts are really a gift of grace, that by God's grace, He gives us these gifts. But most often in this book, in this writing, in the Corinthians, when they use it, when He uses it later on to talk to them, He uses the word pneumatica, which is similar to pneuma, which means spirit, that they are spiritual gifts. So it's interesting, you see, Paul uses the one that's related to grace to talk to them about this, to remind them, hey, this is by the grace of God he has these, but they talk, take it more on this spiritual gifts. He's just trying to drive home that it's a gift from God. But again, they've twisted things, and so there's these different words. Again, nerdy Greek moment, but it's interesting, at least to me. <laughs> so, um, then he goes on and he says, as you're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Essentially, that's what their life is. That's what our life is, too, even, right? Waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting for the coming of Christ. And it says that they would be blameless. In verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Other translations say blameless. That doesn't mean that they're going to be morally perfect. Right? As we look around at our own lives, we're not morally perfect as we wait for the coming of Christ. But just rather the fact that because of Christ, no one can truly bring a charge against them. He is their righteousness, and He is the one who will keep them until the end. But then that powerful verse, verse 9 there, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. Despite whatever is happening in the church and the people around you, God's faithful. God is faithful and he will sustain you until the end. And that's in part, too, an emphasis why we see this passage um, in Advent. One of the challenges, I don't know if, forgive me if I'm repeating the other pastors, but one of the challenges between November and then December in the church year is November ends the church year. So you've got a lot of focus on the end times and the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But then in Advent, we talk about the coming of Christ into this world in the flesh as a baby. Then we've got that he comes to us every single day through word and sacrament. But then also we have that he's coming again in the second coming. So right there in November and December, you get a lot of second coming, end of the world stuff. right? And so that's in part why we, we could also draw a connection to this. Because they're waiting for the coming of Christ. Which is again a theme of Advent. Waiting for the coming of Christ. Well one thing more until we move on to our gospel is as they wait... God's faithful, he's with them. He's the one who blesses them with their gifts. But also as they wait, they wait, as it says there in verse 9, in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word fellowship. Now my guess is you've heard myself or other pastors, Lutheran pastors, who knows where they're from, especially emphasize that word fellowship, koinonia, right? This word a lot of people kind of buzz onto. We have fellowship breakfast. Well, we used to have fellowship breakfast. <laughs> we have these things, the fellowship hall, right? That's that important word of that fellowship, to be in communion, right? And already they have fellowship, they have communion in Jesus Christ. And this fellowship isn't just some vague word of relationship, but it's a truly uniting, it's a participating in Him. We actually participate in Christ through faith and through baptism. And the church in Corinth can continually remember that as they hear the gospel and they receive the sacrament. And so to us today as well, as we wait for that day still, we have the word, we have the sacrament, we have the fellowship of believers to be together. So that again, that word and sacrament then extends into us being together, which is why we do emphasize it's so important to be able to be together. COVID talk again. This is my COVID spot apparently today, right? 
I know it's difficult to be together, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges during all this, all this pandemic stuff. We can't be together, right? It's not safe for some. We're told not to do it. Different reasons. You can span the gamut, right? I'm not saying one thing or another, but we can't be together with people as we used to. Because that's, and that, that's hard for us as Christians because we also know that being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're built up, we're strengthened in the hope that Christ has given us. That Christ, through the word and sacraments, builds us up in the fellowship of being together. Now, also I will say that, again, we can be united even if we're not together. We know that as Christians. But there's something about being together. We're relational, we're physical creatures. I believe that's how God has created us. Any questions or comments on 1 Corinthians? Okay. Let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 11. Now, as, it, as I said, at St. Paul's, Pastor Thomas is preaching Easter in November. Now we're going to go a little bit before that, and we're going to go to uh, um, Palm Sunday in November as well. Mark chapter 11, uh, we get to the triumphal entry. I'll just say it again. We get into passages like this because we have the coming of Christ. And so you have a passage like he's entering into Jerusalem before he goes to the cross because as Christ came in the flesh, we talk about him coming. He came in the flesh so he can come for us to go to the cross. But get ahead of myself. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Here ends our gospel reading for next Sunday. How many of you have heard this one before? All the hands are up. I know they would be if they could be, right? Okay, we've heard this one, so allow me if I, if I may to try to, to, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, enlighten you with something new today. So, um, interesting, as I was looking at this, I did um, dive a different way, and I look at these words um, for these cities, Bethphage and Bethany, and this is somewhat conjecture. It's not 100% concert, confirmed. Definitely all commentators don't agree on this, but it's interesting. Bethany could mean house of the poor or afflicted one. Again, I'm not just saying, well, there's one person out of this world who thinks this. There's multiple commentators who agree this. That's why I'm at least saying it. Not all commentators will agree on this. But again, it's interesting that Bethany, being the house of the poor and afflicted, talk, and so they drew near Jerusalem to this, to this place. Look at what's going to happen here. right? And then Bethphage possibly means house of early figs. And that... I know we stopped reading, but if you, on your own reading, go on further to Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. I'm not getting into that one. That's a whole other discussion. But, point is, it's just you see these, these um, interesting um, meaning in the words that are used. So verse 2, uh, maybe you've heard it before, but he finds a colt. Colt, especially here, is going to draw hearers back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 
And herein lies the importance that in the prophets, in Zechariah, it's prophesied what's to come. And here Jesus is doing what was prophesied, what was said to happen. And that is so significant for Jesus because he is the one who was promised, and not just promised, but actually fulfilled promise. And so in Zechariah, it's promised that a future king will bring salvation and eschatological benefits, benefits in the future. And that one will come mounted on a colt. Again, a reminder, this is not typically the ride for a royal figure. Okay. Typically, a royal figure would not have been on a colt of a donkey. Right? So there you see, in part, too, a little more irony, if you will, that Jesus, who is truly the royal king, and yet he's not riding in the true royal way. So verse 7, they spread their cloaks and even some branches down. Um, this, I, I found this reference before. I never found this before. But I, we've heard before that this is a, a way to recognize royalty, but also victory in general as well. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 6, you'll see that the same thing is done when King Jehu is anointed king of Israel. And to me, that's just interesting because these practices, one, are done because this is what you do for a king, and so, arguably, there's some recognition that Jesus is king, but also some not. I don't want to paint too clear of a picture that everyone knows he's king and, and praise him, because, again, we know that they weren't. The crowd's coming in. Some said he's king. Some weren't sure. Some surely didn't even want him there. But interesting, some of these practices that they did for other earthly kings, they're also doing for him. So he enters in. He's fulfilling these pro- prophecies. Uh, also to note in the Gospel of Mark, up until this point, up until chapter 11 in the Gospel of Mark, much of the book, Jesus is, not, is telling his disciples not to tell of who he is or what he's doing or what he's going to do. A lot of times, and also the Gospel of Mark is a very brief book, if you will. I once, I once heard it say from a, a seminary professor, we'll leave it at that, if he wants to be named with it, but it was a great quote. He said that um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is like the Kung Pao Jesus. Just comes in, gives a blow, and he's out, right? Just gives him a kung pao, one, two, and he's out. It's interesting because when he says that, what he means is just Mark's brevity is not because of lack of details, but just a way to recount the, the works of Christ for certain reasons. And up until chapter 11, he's not really allowing himself to be very much uh, recognized or seen as this king or bringing in this rule or this reign or this victory as he is. But here in 11, we start to see it. We start to see this shift in the gospel of Mark. Last thing I really want to highlight of this is you look in verse 10, well, 9 and 10. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And this will draw us a reference to the Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. Because those, section are, those sections of, that section of Psalms, my apologies, is referenced as the Hallel Psalms. It's the Hebrew term, Hallel. But Hallel being the praise psalms. Um, and those are also psalms, uh, or Psalm 118 especially, is being quoted and referenced in Mark here. And Psalm 118 would also have been a psalm of ascent. Ascent going up. Going up into the temple for, um, for worship. And found this little, little fact as well. That it was even used, Psalm 118 verse 25 is quoted here. Even used at the slaughter of the Passover lambs and on the eight days of the Feast of Booths. That's interesting. At the slaughter of the Passover lambs, they're celebrating the Passover, right? Hearkening back to Exodus when God rescues his people and he gives a lamb. The lamb sheds its blood to rescue the people from, from death. And they're celebrating this. 
And so throughout time, as the priests are sacrificing that lamb for that feast, remembering what God has done, how he saved his people by the blood of a lamb, and now, but who is walk, who is walking, well, riding in, sorry, riding in as this psalm is being quoted and, and chanted, maybe even sung to him, but Jesus, who is the lamb, who's riding in to eventually what would be the slaughter and shedding his blood. Never re- read that before. That was interesting to me. One of the psalms used for that. Any questions, comments? Um, I'll just make a couple of closing remarks then. So again, we begin so with, obviously, Thanksgiving worship. And I, I do want to note, just in case you haven't heard it before, so at St. Paul's in the pair, we'll have worship for Thanksgiving at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, and then Thanksgiving Day at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We are asking people to register as we have been for all worship services. We're, we added an extra service and changed the times on that Thanksgiving day to allow for more spacing and um, COVID mitigation, if you will. And then, as I said, hanging of the green for these lessons. So Sunday, November 29th, we will have hanging of the green as typical here at St. Paul's. So in the sanctuary, all three services, and then a, a hanging of the green variation here in Living Stone as well. Any other questions before I close this? Just a couple minutes early, but in prayer. Okay, great. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the great blessing of your word. Lord, especially as we get into your word, we hear, we hear the plea of your servant Isaiah, pleading for you to intervene into his and all your people's lives, especially in the midst of their sin. And Lord, we know that too, in our lives, we have sin as well. We just pray especially that you continue continue to intervene in our lives. We know that you have intervened through your Son, Jesus Christ, who truly went to that cross, especially as we hear in the Gospel of Mark, going into that city of which then he would be crucified later. Because, Lord, we know that you intervened in such a wonderful, awesome way, Lord. And we pray that you would continually remind us of that, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has paid the price for our sins and has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. And that truly, Lord, you are with us every single day and that you are faithful and that you are with us. So may you strengthen us in your word and in your grace each and every day. And again, Lord, may we always share that word, your grace, and your mercy with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.